Welcome to the Mojo Innovators podcast. Guten Tag, ich heiße Jenny Bully. On today's multilingual Mojo podcast, we're talking about the Deutsche Godfathers of Electronica, Kraftwerk. We've chosen three key moments when Kraftwerk propelled music into the future, turning avant-garde freakery into pulsating autobahn music, how the machine-age grooves of Trans-Europe Express primed a world for techno, house and even hip-hop, and how they reinvented themselves as robots and pop stars. With me from the Mojo Man machine are associate editor and model citizen Ian Harrison and editor John Mulvey. Hello. 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 (laughs) Kraftwerk's breakthrough came in 1974 when they released their hymn to the frictionless pleasures of motorway travel, Autobahn. But actually, they'd been making some pretty far-out music for a few years before that, hadn't they, Ian? They certainly had. Uh, Mm. Ralph and Florian, or Ralph Hutter and Florian Schneider, who first met in 1968 in a class for improvisational music. The first record they appear on is called Tone Float by a group called Organisation. And that is more what you would call, in inverted commas, a kraut rock record. (laughs) It's quite free. um, It's quite percussive. It's uh, stretching at the moorings quite a bit. With lots of violin and flute. <laughs> flute, violins, a lot of drums. Mm. And I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the idea of the live drummer, it continues in craft work, but with you know some considerable changes. You know, but they, they do go electronic. They make their own mm. electronic drums very early on. Mm. So uh, in these early records, you see where they're going to go, definitely, don't you? You know, even like the melodic phrasing of certain things. Yeah, definitely. It's it's kind of a process of streamlining almost, isn't it? Over the over those first four albums, all the way up to Autobahn, in a way, and that they, mm. it's like they're working through ideas in a very free and sort of hippieish way, and gradually boiling it down to something which is still has that experimental imperative, mm. but has that kind of constant forward momentum and that kind of clarity which uh, we tend to take for granted with Kraftwerk's music. Well, it, it attains <laughs> discipline. Yeah, but in the same way that they do have um, traffic cones on Kraftwerk yes, One and Two. Yeah, tell us about the uh, traffic cones. Well, it's just like this sort of um, Warhol-style, yeah. Patrick Caulfield style, very simple image, but um, it crops up later. You know, they obviously they love they're in love with the modern world mm. as much as Jonathan Richmond was, so they want to get on the motorway, they want to get on the train, Something. and they want to mm. think about you know radioactivity and all this stuff. Mm. So, and that idea of you know kind of transposing modern art to music is quite key as well, isn't it? The idea that originality is more important than, say, the way you execute Well, it's interesting to say that because um, I think you can definitely make the art... You know, they have this word, Gesamtkunstwerk, mm, okay. which is a complete artwork. Yeah. And Kraftwerk, I mean, it is very visual, you know. Yeah. The lyrics, for people whose first language isn't English, you know, they are, they are good lyrics. They're quite, you know, Absolutely, stripped yeah. down, pared down. These days, they're in the 3D thing. It's always been as much about, you know, the aesthetic and the look as it is simply about the music. Yeah, it's a, I think there's a, an obvious antecedent in Bauhaus School of Design, not Bauhaus the band I listen to add, but but the Bauhaus School of Design. In, in yes. that in that point where design and art kind of intersect is where Kraftwerk's music exists yeah. as well, I think. It is utilitarian mm. but beautiful. So early on, how did they fit with what we rather uncomfortably call the Krautrock scene? Well, I think they do pretty well for the first couple, don't they? Yeah, so it's that improvisation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah flutes, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you, there's, there's that clip, isn't there? Of, actually, it's a line-up without Ralph in it, the guitarist and drummer from Noi. Yeah. And yeah. that's totally what you've got crowd rock in it. Yeah, we should say, and Ralph, Ralph Hutter is the only surviving member now. They've, like, there are yes, three other members, yeah. so he is 
to all ostensible purposes in 2019 Kraftwerk. Yeah. Tell me about when you met Ralph. Well, I met Ralph in 2009 in a power station in Aarhus in Denmark before and after a concert, um, which they did. And um, it was a very interesting meeting. There was a psychiatrist's couch in the room, <laughs> interestingly enough. He's a very smart, uh, trim, dressed in black, and was uh, very adept at not answering the questions <laughs> in, a, in a way, but also he did answer them. Mm. So it was, uh, it was quite a curious experience. But uh, We should mention at this point that uh, the power station is significant because Kraftwerk translates as power station. It translates right? as yeah. power station. Mm. But um, luckily they didn't um, translate the name in the English-speaking countries because no. buying, <laughs> buying motorway <laughs> by power station would not be very cool, would And it? John Taylor would have been really upset. Yeah. He would have been, yeah. yeah. been. Who was on the psychiatrist's couch? Was it you or was it Ralph by well, the well, end of the interview? Well, there you go. We never quite found out. I mean, he did, he did make a joke about it. I mean, he was quite, he was quite a funny fella, you know. He, was, um, yeah. he had, a, he had a, a wry look about him. And I suppose one thing, you know, obviously after the, the concert, for example, he was really quite um, enthused and excited so I do think this is a yeah. man who does it because he enjoys it. Sure thing. I think you see that in concerts sometimes, don't you? You kind of expect this kind of austerity and, and him and the rest of the band pretending to be robots or whatever. Yeah. But actually, he looks quite mischievous when you watch him. You, I remember, I think, when they played the Tate Modern in 2013 or whatever it was, because you could get so close to the stage, I could see one of his legs kind of just sort of... <laughs> twitching all the way through the gig and it's sort of tapping along to the music he wasn't this kind of android-like presence of you know radiating coldness he wasn't they're not really like that at all i think but well, that, that's the other thing if you i mean if you go and uh you know if you go and watch them enough or you watch the you know, youtube clips or see the dvds mm. i mean those songs that you know that they don't they're not presented in the same arrangements they do do things to them live yeah. especially autobahn actually yeah. They, they, yeah. they kind of jam in autobahn actually they do jam and they've got a man on visuals who jams too. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, a, you know, a very modern live performance, improvisation. Mm. Um, so, John, tell us about the uh, concept behind Autobahn. Well, one of the things that Ralph is very adamant about Autobahn, which ended up as 22 minutes on that breakthrough for, fourth album, really, which I, I was checking this morning. Bizarrely, it was a hit record, actually. It was a hit single in America as well, Autobahn, which given that, that the way we know it is 22 minutes long, seems a bit far-fetched, but they did cut it down to three minutes. But, but he's very adamant that it's about the motorway, not about cars. It's not some kind of right. Top Gear fantasy of driving at 100 miles an hour down the straight road. It's very much about the actual rigour and aesthetic of forward momentum on planned straight roads and, and the beauty inherent in that. It's quite an odd concept, but it's a very... Mm. It, it, Ian mentioned utilitarian earlier, but it's also utopian at the same time. It's this idea of friction, as you said yeah. in the introduction, frictionless travel. But when we say utopian, I think there's everything about this group is so considered. There's always a, a, a second side to it. You know, it's not yeah. totally and utterly utopian because who built the autobahns, you know? I, I just think it's it's all done with, with tremendous foresight, you know, and that kind of goes both ways, you know, yeah. as we will talk about um, yeah. other records, the themes of them. I mean, I think the only thing they ever really clarified, wasn't it, was radioactivity. Yeah. When they actually, when they started playing it live again, they put stop mm. radioactivity in right. there. Yeah. People were kind of thinking it was kind of pro-nuclear mm. yeah, power. Yeah, it has Fukushima. Yeah. They flash the name mm. Fukushima and various other nuclear incidents yeah. on the screens nowadays. So it isn't this kind of fetishization mm. of kind of futurism. Yeah. It, 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 they're very aware of 
the fallibility of progress, I guess, in yeah, that yeah, respect. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. at the same point, it is, I mean, as you say, Autobahn, 22 minute long song, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful listening experience. It is. Yeah. It does sound joyous. It and does, I always yeah, want it to go on. It's like, I'm, I mean, I'm a sucker for long music, really. It's like, if, <laughs> if like anything shorter than yeah. 40 minutes, I, you know, I get kind of frustrated. But it's, it's that jamming imperative, you know. Yeah. It's mm. kind of the, the whole idea of Kraftwerk as a kind of Grateful Dead style okay freestylers it seems somewhat far-fetched to their popular image but I would argue it was quite far-fetched <laughs> that's okay tell um, us about the sound effects that's also quite key to the, the kind of raga aspect of can you imagine work. how what a pain it must have been to do them sound effects in them days yeah exactly, really yeah. hard do you yeah. think it's like a Percy Edwards style scenario I, where they're kind of like working in the corner of the room with I, a bunch I, of props I almost think there's like <laughs> there must be some kind of correlation between the effort made to make it sound like that and kind of how good it is it does sound very effortless, but it must have been very hard. It must, yeah. And yeah. we're talking here about the, the kind of noise of wind through a car when you have the window it's down a bit. And chunk it, it, it's that, yeah. sen- it's that and... sense of movement yeah. all Absolutely, the time. Yeah. And it's what, I think it's what we get. It's what they've managed to do all the way through their career, not just in cars, but in other forms of transport. It's like they're always heading forwards. It's a, it's a great metaphor for their whole kind of aesthetic view, I think. Yeah. And and also they are. I mean, you call them like the, the dead, but I mean these are yeah, basically perhaps facetiously. <laughs> but it's my 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 yeah. any opportunity to but, mention yeah. the Grateful yeah. Dead, cool. basically. But That's yeah. fine. But I was going to say was, but these are yeah. really kind of concept records, aren't they? If you're absolutely Massively, honest, yeah. you know, yeah. Autobahn, you know, it goes through all these these various songs, um, and it ends up with this strange sort of like it's like a sort of Japanese nature poem, isn't it? With this sort of artificial bird song and a flute, yeah. mm. and you have been somewhere, and then you stop. And then it's almost like you have to start again then. It's yeah. the time for them to start the car up again and go. Yeah, that's and in, in fact, those three preliminary records before Autobahn are maybe the ones that are least conceptually united because everything after that has got a firm mm. idea behind the collections of songs. It, it is a mm. discipline. So, John, how far did they stay an experimental band after I, Autobahn? I think all the way through. I mean, Radioactivity is, pre- is a pretty wild record in terms of... It, there's a lot of that kind of uncomfortable ambience about that record, I think. Mm. It's very sort of glitchy and sort of twitchy. It's almost, it's almost like they're, they're creating the sound of radioactivity, yeah, like basically. Canter, but yeah. but it, beyond, beyond that, I think every, it, it comes back to what we were talking about, conceptual artworks, of a minute or two ago. It's very much an ongoing project. And even when they became massive pop stars, and even now, when they're this huge art attraction as at the same time as being this major kind of festival band mm-hmm. as well, when the mood takes them anyway, they're still kind of pushing at what are perspectives on what a pop band or what a rock band should be. They're mm-hmm. still kind of innovating and, and inventing themselves, even after all the, the endless bands who've kind of ripped them off mm-hmm. in the intervening 40 years. So our second moment of key craftwork innovation, we're going to switch from the car to the train. In 1977, the quartet released Trans-Europe Express. What had changed, Ian? There's two percussionists now. There is uh, Wolfgang Fleur and there is Karl Bartos. Rhythmically, things beef up quite a lot. Mm. You know, there is this um, that's the title track, you know, and there's this track Metal on Metal, and uh, a track called Abzug. And it's like a suite of... Um, I mean, it is, it's a, again, it's like Autobahn, but it's on a, it's in a, like a, it's on a, it's on a railway line. You know, and it pulls into um, a siding and it'll go into, you know, some kind of interchange. When my kids were little, they used to love watching the video for Trans-Europe Express because we had all this sort of train visual stuff. So, you know, (laughs) a great band for kids without any doubt. Very meditative, isn't it? Um, 
I think also that there's something changes, doesn't it? And this sort of carries on changing, but they become kind of more of a pop band. That doesn't sound mm-hmm. too mad. I suppose a song like Transgender Expression, you know, there's, a, there's a definite theme there, very immediately recognisable. The idea of European unity. And there's a sort of ambivalence to European culture within it as well, isn't there? Like showroom dummies kind of questions people's slavery. I think that is, um, yeah, it does, because Kraftwerk and all the other groups of, of their vintage coming out of Germany, sort of spirit of 1968, they have um, a history that's very different to America or Britain, of course, yeah. obviously. You know, the, the 12 years up until 1945, I mean, mm. all the sort of art was destroyed. And consequently, they begin from very much a year zero thing. Their parents are very often highly compromised. Very uncomfortable place to be. But I think Ralph Hutter, when I spoke to him, said the, the, you know, the idea, and other people have said this too, um, mm. members of Can say this, they had to create something that was new yeah. Yeah. to um, to now make sense of it, give meaning to it, in the way that you yeah. kind of you don't really get it with Western pop groups. I mean, really, in comparison, you, some of it is a bit more facile. Mm. I think that this is why the German music of that time has its particular weight. And I think they were slightly conscious, although their own human failings are not something that they articulate particularly well, and they're not prone to talking about career errors I think as a, as a as an entity certainly Ralph isn't mm. but I do think that they had an idea that Autobahn because of the association with Nazi Germany with the network yeah. of motorways kind of placed them in a certain German stereotype to an Anglo audience whereas mm. like the actual idea of European unity of Europe endless and the elegance that that entailed this kind of grand tour for the for the late 20th century was uh, was something which felt much more modern, yeah. basically, and, and a modern view of Western Europe at the time, rather rather than one that kind of wedded them to a, to a slight degree within those kind of slightly more problematic ideas of Germany that were still mm. kind of rife in the 70s. But one of the critical ideas about craft work is that they always seem to be on the move, don't they, John? They do, yeah. I mean, it's either the motorways or the trains, or later when they or get their, when yeah. they get their lycra on and they get on the bikes. Yeah, which is which is an amazing thing. Their obsession with cycling is is one of the most human parts of the whole thing. I think that where it becomes body mechanic rather than machine music, which is kind yeah, of fascinating. But, but yeah, it's it's like I think that one of the ideas of of innovation which always attaches itself to craft work is that is this like i say i keep saying this phrase probably but it's it's this idea of perpetual motion mm. it's the fact that they're always pushing forward or, the, or historically they were always pushing forward i think what what they do now is more questionable in those terms but we'll get mm. to that later mm. is it true that um ralph cut his head open falling off a bike he, he poo-pooed this idea. He did, didn't he? In amidst a loads of other, um, you know, just hearsay and rumours and all sorts. I think he's just somebody who doesn't, he doesn't really see that his personal life is there was domain some, to any of this. Yeah. There were some stories that he used to cycle at like 80 miles a day or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that he would There's get what, dropped off the tour bus yeah. and cycle the rest of the way. Yeah, yeah there, there were stories mm. like that. I mean, obviously no, no way of saying it. I mean, I think, I think yeah. he did make the other ones do it and they did get into it, so... Uh, would you say that Trans Europe Express might be their most influential record, Ian? I suppose in the sense that it was, um, I mean, it seemed to go down very big with, you know, hip-hoppers at sure. the time. And it became um, certainly the um, Trans Europe Express, you know, beats and so on. And then numbers 
of um, computer worlds, another one, yeah. isn't it? which which becomes yes, but very both Africa Barbati used. It always seems um, both, you know, counterintuitive but fantastic that music from there would go down so well with you know a, a black audience in mm. America, yeah. but then it does because um, I mean, like in Detroit, you know, the techno producers. Yes, yeah, Cybertron, um, Sample the, the Belleville for eight, three. Mm. They are all um, you know besotted by Kraftwerk because um, it's future music that comes out of uh, industrial situations or even post-industrial situations. It is transcendent. It is yet at the same time it yeah. is deeply thematic, and it makes people dance. There's a possibility of relentlessness to it. There's a sense in what we were talking about, Autobahn, that this track can go on all night. And that, yeah. and so if, you, if you're starting to learn the rudiments of mixing, then you can just keep that beat going. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's that whole thing about that sequence of that Ian was talking about earlier, the whole Trans-Europe Express Abzug, metal on metal. Mm. It's just, it could just roll all night. And we should point out that African Ben Barter's Planet Rock is considered to be the first hip-hop record. It's, it's, it is, I suppose it's... It's, it's electro, It's electro it? record, yeah. 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 But, yeah. But it's the roots of yeah. hip-hop and, yeah. and obviously yeah. itself is craft. But I suppose it's an example of somebody hitting on a really good idea, you know, just get, getting there first, really, because yeah. they do. I mean, a lot of them songs off um, you're about Computer World or something, they, they, I'm sure they would still, you know, stand up now. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, we'll be back to that in a minute. If you want to hear any of the craftwork music we've talked about on this podcast, head over to the Mojo Innovators podcast playlist at Apple Music. This week, we're talking about craftwork with Ian Harrison and John Mulvey. So, by the end of the 1970s and the Man Machine album, craftwork have found new ways to be even more secretive and unlike the typical pop star. How did they do that, Ian? In one way, they did. Mm. They, you know, they released their virus and watched. Generation of British <laughs> musicians trying to be them. Yeah. I mean, look at like Gary Newman or something. A song called Cars, yeah. wearing a shirt and tie. I yeah, think he may have been into craft work. They find new ways to be, to be secretive. They have the Kling Clang Studio in Dusseldorf, apparently a, a, a big building without a sign or a doorbell. Pretty clever. <laughs> and where they don't answer the phone as well, allegedly. No, yeah, that's right. Well, they didn't have a ring on the phone was the story, wasn't it? <laughs> you see, this is it. We're filling in all these things, and people did for years. I think it goes quiet. Why does it go quiet? Probably because after a sequence, one after the other, of absolutely incredible records, I mean, how do you keep on doing that? How do you keep on following mm. it? Well, maybe you put a record out from an album that was about two or three years old and it suddenly miraculously goes to number one in Britain as well. <laughs> there <laughs> it's is kind that. Of like this. So are we talking about the model here, aren't we? The model, we? yes. Um, well, again, I mean, it's a you know, tremendous record, haunting record, so um, suitable for that time mm. of, um, you know, dressing up in new romantics and lots of electronic music being made. Do you think, though, because I always think that the model became a number one in Britain as a, because it was a novelty record almost. I think it was treated as a novelty record by a lot of people. I think that's why it was such a bigger hit than everything else. I mean, I, mean, I, I get that kind of obvious parallels with the new romantics and that, but, I, you, know, you know, 1981 or whatever it was, you know, we, there were a hell of a lot of strange one-off records in the, you know, when, when was O Superman out, the Laurie Anderson <laughs> record? Point, it's yeah. a similar kind of thing that suddenly these kind of strange arty records yeah. fall quite, into the mainstream as one-offs. 
And it's quite melodious by Kraftwerk terms, though, isn't it? Well, it it's is. Not, it is. I mean, I remember that typical. There, was there are more words, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it kind of has a story as well, doesn't mm. it? You know, it has a story about it. So, Ian, by by this point in the late seventies, is their studio Kling Klang now entirely computers and synthesizers? I would say not, because mm. the from listening to them, you'd think it would be, but the technology didn't exist at that point for it to be as electronic as, as it sounds so they must have been doing an awful lot of it with um other sources of their own creation or very judicious use of sounds and generally having a very strong sonic aesthetic this is what i was yeah. saying earlier on they achieve all of this stuff by analog means basically yeah, by editing True. and by just very disciplined playing mm. and very judicious use of the resources and making their own sounds as well like you would get on i mean on radioactivity is covered in those things isn't it? yeah yeah Computer World doesn't sound like that, but it still is. It's, it, Computer World sounds like a, a, a sort of stainless modern pop record, but it does have it does have these little sort of bits of rust on them as yeah. well. I mean, this is what so, is what is so good about it. But I think when the technology becomes more easily available, mm. and when everyone starts to be able to do it, that is when you could possibly see the forward motion yeah. beginning to slow. Yeah, because yeah. it's that thing, isn't it, of um, of endless options. Mm. When it becomes too easy it actually becomes perversely harder to it, create something new. It must be. But they'd worked out how to be high art and mainstream pop at the same time. And that's something they've capitalised on for the last 30 years or so, isn't it, Ian? Well, they, they do play in art galleries. You know, they mm-hmm. have done... Um, as the one, you know, the one you were talking about, they did play in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Yes, they played in the Tate, Tate Modern. Yeah. Tate Modern in, um, in Britain. And so big one in the... Dusseldorf as well. Big they, one they kind of went. They, they did it for a year or two. Like they, they sort of alternate between doing festival seasons and then art seasons, art residencies. So, yeah, yeah. Because they did what was it? It was like eight or nine nights at um, yeah. the Tate, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. does extend this idea of it. You know, it is the the Gesam Kunstwerk. You know, it's like a sculpture. It's something that you go and see. Mm. And like walk. Gilbert and George's, uh, oh, you know, drinking <laughs> sculpture or whatever. <laughs> it was. I mean, but when I but when I spoke to Ralph, I mean, he did say yeah. it was the idea. But this is why they like the physical. They like the physical object. And they like the, the live performance because mm. you are there with it and you can, you know, it's like having a painting there. You can walk around it. You can look at it from different angles. And you can respond to it in different ways. Yeah. You can either yeah. stroke your chin yeah. or, or yeah. rave onto it. You know, it's yeah, yeah. kind of, it's like they're, they're open. To, it's music which is open to interpretation. It's kind of, you can respond to it in a million different ways, whether cerebral or physical. I mean, I mean, I guess a lot of music is like that, but it just seems more kind of, sort of integrated into the whole idea of craft work and their music. Yeah. No, the idea of integ- integration is absolutely bang on, yeah, because it's, it's all... So there's, no, there's not nothing is out of place. But then again, they also... I mean, they played the velodrome in Manchester. Oh, that's oh with the cyclists yeah. going round. Yeah. They had Which the was pursuit, hilariously yeah. good fun seeing Did you that. go to I that? went to that, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It, was, it was great. And, you know, they, and they play, you know, um, the festivals in Europe, and you know, they play all kinds of gigs. So it's not just art. No, it's true. But of course, it's much, you know, it suits their sort of secrecy aspects to be able to put these robots on stage. They've even done interviews as the robots, haven't they? Which is quite an unedifying prospect. Well, you know, I was uh, in the process of doing a bit of preparation for this interview. Mm. I was actually looking at the current members of the band because, apart from Ralph, because Florian, who yeah, was sure. the other key member, left in mm. 2008, I think, wasn't 2009, it? I think it was. And there's one guy who's been in the band relatively recently, Falk Griefenhagen, who's, who's mm. their visual mixer live the really young stage. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the other two guys have been in the band now for the best part of 30 years longer yeah. than 30 years and it occurred to me they've, they've been an integral part of craft work for 
Longer well over half of their of the career, and yeah. I can never remember their names. Uh, Helling <laughs> Schmidt. It's Henning Schmitz. I've written it down. Yeah. Henning Schmitz and Fritz Hilpert. Fritz Hilpert, yeah. I mean, it, it's like we're meant to be the experts and we can't remember who the members you have to, are. After a while, you have to point, you know, just give in. Yeah. But it was interesting because I, I also interviewed um, Carl Bartos um, in about 2006 or something like that. Mm. And he did describe the experience of being in Kraftwerk from 1986 to, well, nearly 81 till about, I don't know, whenever he left, it was um, 1991, something like that. Yeah, I think so, yeah. As, you know, you've got a jumbo jet in the back garden and it never takes off. Now, was, was that when he wrote the book? Was it, was that was Wolfgang Clare. Well, I always yeah. forget who wrote I Was a Robot, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's like, but they're, they're basically, they're, they're our insiders because they, mm. they're the two who were there at that kind of imperial phase of Kraftwerk's yeah. music making and were a critical part of it as well. I think it, it's a mistake to assume that Schneider and Hutter did everything on those records. I do think those two had a fairly significant role to play on those records. Well, they must have done them in their songwriting credit, aren't they, for, for Carl Bartos? And they certainly assert their uh, input very, very strongly, I think, don't I think, they? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that the Wolfgang Flair book, I mean, it's, it's kind of entertaining, but I'm not sure what it adds really to our understanding. Well, they were very unhappy about it, weren't they? they given were, that it didn't really reveal... Well, it kind of, it, it just, it kind of revealed you know, the kind of detail that you could reveal about anybody. Yeah. And it's not the coolest thing you could say about them. Well, perhaps that's the point. It was too human. It probably was. Mm-hmm. It was too human. And therefore, it's probably not essential. No. I think Kraftwerk and Ralph are far too elegant and well-adjusted in their lives or certainly appear to be to be particularly paranoid. But I do think it is critical to their idea of how Kraftwerk should be presented that we don't know this stuff. We don't know how many cups of tea he drinks a day or whatever, yeah. or, or, you know, or the, the perhaps not entirely scintillating details of how these records were made. It takes away the the kind of the enigmatic status around them. You know, they're they're far too clever to try and make out to us that they are inhuman in some way. But at the same time, their humanity isn't their USP. No, sure. Mm. Have we given up all hope of ever hearing new Kraftwerk music? No, I think they could do it. Mm. They could spring. I mean, they did with Tour de France soundtracks from two thousand and three. Nobody saw that coming, did they? That was a total no, surprise. That's right. Expanding on uh, basically the the album mm. of the, a song that had come out what, In twenty years before yeah. that, yeah. 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 But you know, there was there were new pieces on there. What's yeah. the maybe song that Expo two thousand? Uh, uh, vitamin, vitamin, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah but peculiar. I think you could still do it. What it would be, I have no idea. But I'm an optimist. You know, mm. I think you know if he. I mean, he did say Autobahn took him twenty eight years to make, right? Because he was twenty eight when they made that record, so he wasn't you know a young kid or anything. So we've had. <laughs> um, 45 years since then. So, you know, maybe it's time Perhaps for another real... beavering away. He does say they are, you know. He did say they are working on stuff. They are definitely working on stuff now. Mm-hmm. You know. He hasn't let us down yet. Come on. No. It's, if, you're, if you're listening, Ralph, come on. <laughs> it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because, because the way they present themselves now on stage is they're very aware that what they do in 2019 or in the 21st century, can be conceived as retro-futurism rather than futurism per se. So they do play up to the slight antique idea of Mm. the future now in their graphics, especially. The music's kind of timeless, but Mm. they're very knowing in the way they present themselves. Totally, yeah. Mm. I mean, neon lights, you know, neon lights are, you know, they're going to be extinct soon, aren't they? Yes, well, that's true. But there are still these fantastic films, you know, this beautiful song, about the neon lights, you know, mm. and that's a, there's an essential truth about that's something. 
They've never engaged with technological advances in communications and, you know, email and the internet. They and... did it in 1981. No, well, this is they true. foresaw it all. <laughs> but, and um, then they walked away from it before it got messy. Yeah, well, yeah they were into it before it was wise, hip, but yeah. now, you know, who, who likes that stuff anymore? <laughs> <laughs> On that optimistic note, that's all we've got time for today. But huge thanks to Mojo's Ian Harrison and to John Mulvey. To hear all the music we've discussed over this programme, visit the Mojo Innovators playlist on Apple Music. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe. Next time, I'll be talking about Joni Mitchell with Jim Irvin. The producer was Simon Barnard. I'm Janie Bully. Thanks for listening. Listener.